Hello, and welcome to The Word on the Hill with the Linky Guys. My name is Father Peter Musset. My name is Scott Powell. And you are listening to the uh, edition of the podcast for Easter Sunday. That's true, despite the fact that we're recording it on Holy Thursday, which is worth noting because it's significant and how significant this period that we're entering into. So it's, it fe- and I, I, there, I almost want to be apologetic about the fact that we're talking about, it's weird, this is my, my weird Catholic sensibility, but also the ingrained guilt that comes along with it. <laughs> the fact that they're all going to be listening to this, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, perhaps, but we're talking about Easter Sunday, but it's not Easter Sunday yet. And so we're talking about things that we're not really supposed to talk about yet because we got to talk in preparation for them. But Why don't we just uh, release it on Saturday morning? Because everyone's going to get mad. I'll get angry emails. It's okay. We can deal with that. We can yeah, deal with that. Can, we, we can deal with We can that. deal yeah, with yeah. it. And th- well, really, they're going to have to deal with it. Well, no, this, this is the thing that um, I realized, and you and I actually have this same thing to where the next big thing, it's, you kind of can't just like do things out of order. It's kind of- It's hard. It's, it's hard. Like yeah. So like I, I was like trying to study for Holy Thursday and and, and Easter, Easter Vigil. And, yeah. and I was like, oh, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give myself over to this partly for this reason. Um, the Triduum is a whole. Right. So and it's technically one liturgy that reaches from Thursday to Saturday, right? Through Sunday. Well, through midnight, through the Easter Vigil. Actually, right? through Divine Mercy Sunday. I mean, really. Well, but the actual liturgy yes, concludes goes with, with the, the end of the Easter Vigil. At the end of the Easter Vigil. And then there's another one, of course, yeah. on Sunday. So right. it's still one liturgical moment, but there, there's. Yeah. Yeah, which is fascinating. And if you didn't know that, this is, if, any, if nothing else, just our encouragement. I, I remember you, honestly, the first time I, and I'm hesitant to say this, I'm hesitant to say the first time I realized that there was stuff going on on Thursday, <laughs> Friday, and Saturday, because I just I just wasn't aware of it. You know, I was of a particular right. kind of generation of Catholic where you went to Easter Mass, and that was, that was good, but right. I just wasn't aware of all the stuff that was going on, and it wasn't really until college Same. that I discovered this. And then especially at my alma mater at Franciscan University of Steubenville, it just... It absolutely changed my entire view of everything. The when I when I went to the, um, you know the the memorial of the the giving of the Eucharist or the <laughs> blah, blah, blah. the memorial of the Lord's Last Supper. The Lord's Supper, yeah, it's where we get the Last Supper. We celebrate that on Thursday, and the washing of the feet and the 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 um, um, the not the reverencing of the cross. Why can't I speak words today? Veneration. The veneration of the cross on Friday, and then my first Easter vigil ever of you know being oh. in darkness and then the lights come on. It was. I encourage you to whatever degree you're able to or to whatever degree things are happening in your diocese, any way you can engage in these next few days. It is it is just such a beautiful thing. And we are also experiencing sort of the Christian reality of we're smack in the middle or we're about to launch into the triduum here. But we're also living, at least in the podcast, in Easter because that is the Christian reality of being able to actually live in both realities. That we live with the cross, we live with Good Friday, but we also live in the fruit of Good Friday, which is Easter Sunday. And it's it's okay to sort of live in that tension as Christians. That's kind of what we're called to in a certain sense. Right. So that being said. That being said, <laughs> let's uh, jump into the old reading. They okay. are old. They're thousands of years old. In fact. They are. I mean, we were discussing the theory of writing and how Western civilization was um, built in an oral tradition that then was committed to writing and then the nature of writing itself and plutonic forms of letters and you it was know, wild. You know, calligraphy and typography and you know uh, and really this the foundations of civilization itself. That's actually how we started today, which was a really interesting. 
It's how we started our time together. Yeah, our time (laughs) together, not the podcast. (laughs) Our first reading is from Acts 10, 34a to 37.43. Yes, indeed. Um, Which is Peter's speech. We'll talk about that. Uh, Our response to Real Psalm is Psalm 118, verses 1 to 2. 16 through 17 and 22 through 23. By the way, I don't know if we said it or not. We're doing the readings for Easter Sunday. So we're not actually today discussing the Easter. There's lots of options for Easter and what we could discuss. So we're choosing to do the Easter Sunday during the day readings. And uh, you're more than welcome to go into the archives. And we've several times gone yeah, through the vigil readings. The vigil. And they are an unchanging. So we encourage you. if, if That's you, right. They don't follow liturgical, uh, the three-year swapping. cycle. They, they're always the same, which right. is... Because uh, I was going to say, I don't remember doing it three times, but we didn't have to. Yep. So so on and off again, we do it um, arbitrarily, depending on the year, <laughs> um, whether or not we, well, we do it. So there are several times we've gone through all of these readings. And, and so if you... Um, uh, I don't know if, if it was several. Yeah, we've done it. Have it, we done it several? I know. Because it's a marathon. Yeah. Like three times at least. Okay. If not... I believe you. If not seven times. That's I, not If true. not 14 times. All right. Okay. Colossians, please. Okay. So... so <laughs> <laughs> so our second reading, since he, so there's options. You actually can do either Colossians or Corinthians, but we're going to do Colossians this year. Is that okay with you? I, 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 I looked at the I USCC, can do either one. But... I looked at the USCCB website and I knew what you were doing. All right, uh, our gospel is coming from John, chapter twenty, verses one through nine. Oh yeah, I didn't say Colossians three one through four. Oh, you didn't? I just said Colossians. I did not give the address. Sorry. I well now I, we have it. I got you to the neighborhood, but I didn't give you the house. You didn't give it. No, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, you guys, the first reading acts. Um, God shows no partiality. So talk to me about like this is actually really important because we're talking. This is this is not actually where it, it's kind of funny to where we find ourselves, which is Cornelius. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of this is a this is an interesting thing. So tell we're in Caesarea and 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 he's talking to Cornelius in the house. Yeah, this is uh, I contend, which we don't get any of the context of that, and it, we don't even get the line of he God makes no partiality or God uh, shows no partiality. That's the part that's skipped over when we go from thirty four a into thirty seven. Really? Um, yeah, no, which th- is no. I thought it says that I, in USCCB it says that doesn't. Peter it? proceeded to speak and said, "You know what has happened all over Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, and the power." So it's in verse thirty-four B, I believe, that he says, "God shows no partiality." I, I perceive this. Oh, which I think it's perfectly fine. So sometimes I kind of nitpick when the the church, uh, you know, piecemeals things out, but I, I think there's a fair enough reason for this, um, because what this passage. Now, I think it's important for our sake to talk about the context because that's what we do. But it's also the church knows that this is the day that more Christians are, or more people in general are going to come to Mass than any other day, maybe other than Christmas. So let's get the the essentials of what needs to be stated. Here. Right. So that's where our job comes in. We say, okay, so let's unpack. So this is, I, I believe this is actually not only the turning point of the book of Acts of the Apostles, but I think it's the turning point of Christianity. So Christianity that, of course, begins with the resurrection, that is um, brought to life at Pentecost, the turning point, I think, of the early Christian world happens here. And this is the moment, right before this, rather, is the moment that Peter was up in a place called Joppa. I remember he was brought there because people asked him to heal, and um, he was he was performing miracles and doing things because people understood that if this guy was a follower of Jesus, 
perhaps he can do the same things that Jesus did. There's this such powerful and and um, sometimes I feel convicted in in a sort of a negative way sometimes of, of looking back on the early church existed within this world, at least to some degree. There was plenty of persecution, of course, but to some degree they existed in a world where people just assumed by default, you guys embody the Jesus who you followed. And if Jesus could do it, I bet you can too. And I imagine a world and a church in where the world looked at Christians and said, wow, I actually see Jesus in you. And I bet I can have an experience of Jesus through you. And that convicts me because I don't know that that's what the world sees, but it certainly was what the world saw in Peter. And so they said, well, we have these sick people and these people suffering. Peter, can you come and do the things that Jesus did? And he's like, sure. And so he goes up, he heals these people. Uh, I think Tabitha comes back from the dead. There's all, all sorts of stuff that happens. And it says he's staying at this house of another guy named Simon. And while he's staying at this home, he gets this vision. It's the famous pigs in a blanket vision, we always say, right? right. Where he sees a vision of this blanket with all of these formerly f- foods, animals that were formerly considered unclean in the Old Testament. And God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he gives this insight into the nature of unclean, according to the Old Testament, according to Leviticus, um, God is changing the status of those things. God right. is renewing all of creation, really. This is what the resurrection does. And as that's happening, this representative, or these representatives from this Gentile, this non-Jew, Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, a believer in God, to whatever degree, we're not sure, but a believer in God, but a non-Jew, an outsider, not part of the family, he gets a vision from God to send down to Joppa, bring this guy named Peter because he's got a message to share. And so as Peter is grappling with this idea that God has now changed the status of things that were formerly considered unclean, these guys from an outsider's household come and say, hey, can you come with us back to our home? And he's like, I don't know what God is doing, but yeah, absolutely, I'll go. So he goes and he begins preaching the gospel to these um, Gentiles, these non-Jews, these outsiders, a Roman centurion, which would have been one of the most threatening people on earth for the Jewish people or for the early Christians at the time. Absolutely. And he launches into this proclamation of the gospel, which is what we get here. But the two things that I, so that's the context, that's what's going on. But the two kind of just reflections I have about this, because they've been sort of sticking with me as I looked through this. Again, like you pointed out, what the rest of verse 34 says is, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I perceive that God shows no, no partiality. Right. Meaning, you guys are apparently as beloved to God as we, the Jews, are, which was a fairly unprecedented thing to realize. As he's hot on the heels of sorting through this reality that now there's certain animals that were considered unclean and now God has changed their reality for us and that creation is renewed and maybe these Gentiles are not who we thought they are in the plan of God. And now I see that God wants us to share the gospel with you. It's not just a new phase of revelation in Judaism. It's a new phase of revelation for the entirety of the world. Which is actually like the, 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 the part, one of the purposes of the food laws was isolation from the rest of the nations. Yeah, right. So like- Isolation so, from the nation. Isolation from the nations. <laughs> no, it's true though. <laughs> it, it, and so so actually Cornelius and, and all of this, actually the pigs in the blanket and this, all of this is actually They're directly connected. tied together. Right. Yeah, it's and not one is an analogy for the other. They are directly tied it's, together. It's saying you take and eat. You're actually free to engage with everybody now. Yep. You can you can actually have meals with with everyone. Yeah, because we, we forget sometimes we're one of the only civilizations or one of the first that 
our MO is eating alone, right? And having lunch by ourselves. I mean, the, eating food meals for the ancient world was a communal event. It was a family thing. You sat down to eat with people to share life. And Israel's problem was that every time they shared fellowship and life with people who are not like them, they fell into the problems of those people. They fell to the sins. They fell to the idolatry. They became like them rather than being the influence to the rest of the world. So yeah, so food, yeah, that's a really important. I actually had never been able to articulate it that way. That's really important. So Cornelius is the lot. Cornelius, <laughs> he's not, I was going to say he's the logical fruit of the <laughs> pork, but, um, but it is the logical outcropping for what Peter's experienced. God is taking Peter through a very logical pedagogical, pedagogical path to what's going on, which praise be to God. What, what a merciful thing for God to do and a gracious way for him to teach Peter by taking him incrementally into this new reality. So anyway, I, I think that's very beautiful, and I and I really like just how um, how clear his preaching is in this moment. This it's, it's, it's just like okay, Jesus. He said we were, were witnesses. Here's the church. Um, Jesus was put to death by hanging him on a tree, and then God raised him on the third day. And that and but then he, he there's a little there's a little scandal of particularity, mm. but it's not partiality. Well, yeah, particularity. There's a, a, an important distinction between particularity and partiality because God chose the particular. He chose to be a Jew in that part of the world in that year, right. not because they're better than everyone, but he used the particular for the sake of the universal, for and the then, sake of all. And then said, I'm going to commission these ones to go so that you guys can all get drawn in. Yeah. And this is, oh, go for it. Well, th- this is the part that I've been sort of... Um, reflecting on i guess this it's it's what troubles me i think i actually i even mentioned it last week as just again something that perpetually troubles me peter said so um what does he say he said something that again i i mentioned last time yeah he said put him to death by hanging on a tree this man god raised on the third day and granted that he be visible not to all people is that with the part about the particularity not to all people, but to us. So there's two ways to read that. You could read that in the terms of his visibility was, was the incarnation was to the Jewish people. He became a Jew for the sake of the Jews, as Paul says, so to save all. But there's another level of that that is very particular to Easter in that God raised Jesus on the third day. He came back to life. He defeated death, but not in a way that was visible to everyone. Right. He appeared to a couple. And then Peter realizes that our job is to be the witnesses of this thing that God showed to only a small number, which would have been much more efficient for God to simply show the resurrection to everyone and to say, see, this is what I've done. This is the proof. This is why I really was God. All the skeptics were wrong. Everybody who naysayed me was, you know, full of baloney. And now I'm here in glory. Look at me, everybody. But he doesn't do that. He appears to a couple and then gives Christianity the job of witness, which is the least efficient and most difficult way to convey a message. It's not mass producible. It is tied to individuals. It's tied to discipleship. It's tied to relationship. And yes, of course, even today, 2,000 years later in Christianity, we can use the internet. We can use mass media. We can use giant billboards on the side of the road. All of those things are good, but nothing replaces human-to-human contact, relationship, friendship, interaction, because the gospel is an incarnate reality. And if Jesus wanted to mass produce and mass publicize his resurrection, he would have done that. 
But he said, no, I'm giving this witness to you so that you can individually go and give it individually to all the rest. This is why Christianity is always fundamentally an incarnational reality that can use media, that can use the tools of technology that are given to us, but never in an exchange for incarnational reality. And that's what Peter is showing us. And the reason that that was kind of a powerful reflection for me, I don't know if you heard that, that there was news this week, there's a Pew study, I think, that came out, that for the first time, um, people who uh, uh, identify as, as um, people who go to church, church-going people, drop below 50% of the population for the first time ever. So it's the lowest recorded um, thing we've ever had for people who identify as believers. So we're, which means we're entering a new phase of at least Western civilization or civilization in the United States of America where we are really at minority phase of people who actually say that they go to church, where this is a thing. And I'm sure the pandemic has, has factored into that. We were already headed the wrong direction to begin with. But what it means is that, you know, we as Catholics or many of us, although it doesn't get used as much anymore, but there was a time where we talked about a lot about this idea of the new evangelization, right, where we have to find the people who are churched and have gone to church, maybe were baptized or confirmed and, and remind them of what they have taken part in. But now I think we're starting to hit the phase in the, our history where we have to go back to the old evangelization, where we have a world who doesn't have a clue about who Jesus is. It's not they just have a misunderstanding or a partially formed division. I think that's true in a lot of ways. But I think we're very much moving to a place where it is not the common view that anybody has any objective knowledge about who Jesus is or what Christians believe. There might be caricatures out there. But Peter now becomes the example of we need to start fresh. We need to go out to the margins. We need to go to these places and we need to start by sharing the gospel message. Simple, fundamental, foundational message. Because we in the United States of America have dropped below a threshold where we are no longer a Christian society. And one of the greatest ways to do that is meals. by eating pork. Meals. Oh, bacon, I was going to say. but yeah. Bacon, you know, BLTs. Bacon doesn't hurt. Bacon does not hurt the evangelization. No, but you're people. right. I was kind of being funny about it, but you're absolutely right. It's just like go and actually, like, if you're tempted to eat alone, then don't. don't. <laughs> find someone. Find, find a neighbor. Find a friend. Right. You've go phone invite your neighbors from down the street to come to dinner at your house. Right. Maybe they'll see the crosses on the wall or the Bibles on your shelf and may ask questions about it. Right. This is what we need to be doing. Right. We need to become an incarnational church again right. that gets in people's lives and our witnesses because that's the only way um, the church is actually going to be able to spread the gospel in this time, I think. Yeah, agreed. Because there's lots of stuff that floats around on the internet and on media. It's confusing. There's a lot of yelling voices. But we all have our neighbors and we all have credibility with the people in our communities because we have face-to-face -face stuff. We all have, you know, other moms at the playground or other parents at the school, other, you know, whatever it is. That's where the gospel message is needing to shift. And so, that falls on all of us. Yeah, that's a responsibility. Absolutely. This Easter comes with um, a call and a responsibility. It, which goes us, brings us actually into Psalm 18. I think it does perfectly, actually. Yeah, because like 
the pro- I would have said that even if I didn't. Yeah, the proclamation, <laughs> the proclamation that we actually give within the gospel is forgiveness. I mean, I I want my prophetic voice if I could cry out from the rooftops more than anything else. It's I if I could have my patron saint card say the apostle of forgiveness. That would be like my greatest longing. His mercy endures forever. Ever. Give thanks to the Lord. He is good. Let Israel say his mercy endures forever. At the core of the gospel message is to say we're I'm a minister of the mercy of God. Like that is like yeah. I've renewed my promise in at the chrism mass this last tuesday mm. to say i am a minister of the mercy of god and and if god can forgive you how much more can we forgive one another and in an age where the the, the forgiveness is no longer seen as a value mm. is but right. it, the, if there's going to come a conflict of values between those who live the gospel message and those who don't it is going to be that's not an if core. yeah it's a when Right, and 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 the most dramatic moments are at the at the conflict and of yeah. of values, Absolutely. and and so what do we value? We value being forgiving and forgiven. Absolutely, like I value being able to forgive, like I do. That's the great grace that we have, right. and we know how to do it. We have a rich tradition, a rich history of it. We've got confessionals. We've got the whole nine yards. We've got methods and means. But that's important, though, because if we have not ourselves tapped into that or reflected on what it means to be forgiven, what it means to have had God show his mercy, if we haven't been to confession in a long time, we're not going to be able to do that for the other people in our lives. Right. So we have the means. Like you said, we have an entire infrastructure of mercy. But if we haven't reflected on that ourselves and seen our own need for it and tapped into it, then we have nothing to share. We have nothing to give. It's like this. If you can pray the Our Father without getting a little, like, the, just a little niggle at forgive us our trespasses. You say a little forgive, niggle? Yeah, a I little like niggle. Um, at forgive us our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us, then... Um, then you know what? You're perfect, and I hope you're martyred soon so that you can go directly to heaven in all of your glory. But let's be honest. We all have a little bit there. Absolutely. And so we do that, and that's why it's like the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You know what? There's a little bit of us, and as as we're entering into the triduum, into these sacred days, as we're going towards this Easter proclamation— it's all it's all a preparation to be able to receive these graces so of mercy of mercy of resurrection of mm. understanding that Jesus nobody took his life from him and he freely gave he freely gave and yes they rejected him but he accepted that he accepted to do that right he accepted it and and this has been done and it is wonderful in our eyes that's like that's why when we come to sunday we say Oh, there is a purpose. That's why yeah. in our lives we're going through the stuff. We're going through yeah. all these things. We're going through it as a civilization, mm. as a uh, as a as a, an American civilization in nations all over the world. We're going th- through these civilizations. We're we're actually pulling away from worshiping God and worshiping ourselves. And like th- that's really when it, well, that's that's ultimately what it comes down to in this in this time period. We're not because we're not doing idols the same way. I mean, you have the idols of of money and sex. It's true, but right. like when it comes down to it, it's just like you no know, being totally turned in on ourselves. We've made ourselves the idol, right? It's still it's still idolatry. It's just less obvious, I think. Right. But even with that, you, you know, what I take from this psalm more than anything else is it 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 
suggests to us an anthem for our lives, which is let that this is an antiphonal. Um, well, all of the Psalms are to some degree antiphonal, but there's a specific one. Let the house of Israel say, and then we're all supposed to repeat his mercy endures forever. I kind of wish that was actually the response which, you know, this is arranged the way that it is. But we actually are given an antiphonal response in Psalm 118. We are the house of Israel. What should be our anthem? His mercy endures forever. So when we read studies that say that less than 50% of people identify as Christian, what's our response? Oh, no, that's horrible. What fools? How lazy? How, you know, whatever. No, our response should be his mercy endures forever. Look at all these atrocities taking place. His mercy endures forever. It's, it's calling us to a particular kind of anthem that defines who we are. And I, I'm, I'm going to take that with me as I try to make sense out of the world and respond to what I see in the world and respond that way. And with, you can say it very quickly by just saying hesed. Hesed, yeah, absolutely right. That's actually his mercy endures forever. You had the tone of a joke, but then you said something very serious and profound, <laughs> which really threw me off. <laughs> You know what that means in Hebrew. <laughs> no, you didn't. Dude, this is my, this is actually, this is my, that's my style. I like do that and when I'm preaching. Just to throw me off. I'll, 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 or I like, I'll take the tone of something absolutely radically serious and then I'm like, Egyptology. And, <laughs> and they're like. They're Did you like, say Egyptology? Yeah. Egyptology is very serious business for Egyptologists. And I'm just saying. And if you haven't gotten consumed by like a deep dive into some weird Egypt stuff in a long time, totally go have fun. That's like good stuff. You know, like <laughs> what a weird takeaway. Yeah, a weird takeaway. That's I reasonable. I have no idea. But every once in a while, I just caught up and I'm like, dude, I, the, the, I need me some Egyptology. Dude, ancient the methods of precision in ancient Egypt, that's where I'm like, what? Because I'm obsessed with machine tools. Mm. So, okay, we go into our second reading, which you Colossians. can do Colossians versus Corinthians. Oh, yeah, and we yes, there are two options. And so we're doing Colossians. Yeah, is that all right? Yeah, it is. Um, the reason that I like the Colossians option, Colossian option, Colossian option. Um, brothers and sisters, if then you that were has, raised with that Christ, has beautiful assonance. It does, doesn't it? I kind of like that. Um. The, all of Paul, most of Paul's letters, not all, most of Paul's letters are written uh, on the occasion of a challenge or an opposition or a problem that needs to be solved, right? Colossians, the problem that we're experiencing in the church of Colossae, which is in um, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, but the problem they were facing in that, in that particular church community was a disunity that was coming about as a result of false teachers, bad teachers, misleading teachers. Paul actually says at one point that he lays awake at night, constantly stressed out about all of his churches. Because, you know, Paul's whole MO is he'd go around the, the Mediterranean world, he'd preach the gospel, he would establish churches, he would anoint bishops and priests to serve in these places, and then he'd leave, and he'd have to go somewhere else, and he'd just have to hope that nothing was going to come in to corrupt or destroy all of those beautiful, new, wonderful believers in these communities, which they almost constantly did. <laughs> and so yeah. he's writing these letters out of, out of um, real angst of a father who's concerned about his children that he can't be face-to-face -face with who are being misled. And the misleading problem that is causing disunity in the Church of Colossae is a, um, a precursor to what we might call Gnosticism. There's these bad teachers that are essentially saying, hey, we know the truth— 
It's not accessible to you guys. Only us have it. And if you want to be tapped into the secret knowledge gnosis, then you need to follow us or you need to be our disciples and you need to come after us and then we'll kind of let you in. And what their teaching suggests is that what will become later Gnosticism proper is that fundamentally things of the body, things of flesh, things of material, things of the world are, are bad. They're fall- they are fallen, but they're not bad. They've been redeemed by Jesus. But these teachers are saying they're bad and you need to just focus on spiritual things. Because your body is worthless. It's meaningless. Your, you know, your earth, the food you eat, meals, all of the stuff of life, that's all to be st- dispensed with or put aside because what's important is the spiritual life. And Christianity has always come in and said, no, that's not right. We are bodies and we are spirit. And it matters what we do in our bodies because that affects our spiritual life. And our spiritual life is directly manifest in our physical life. If our spiritual life isn't on tap, we're not going to be good neighbors or family members. But if we're good family members and we're good neighbors, then we are actually acting as loving people toward the God. What does James say? How can you Say you love the God who you do not see and not love the brother and sister who you actually do see and can see. These two things are directly intertwined. And so the the heresy that comes out of this time is called docetism, which is Jesus didn't really suffer in his body. He just looked like he did to make us kind of feel better because he's pure spirit. And whatever body he had was just sort of an illusion because God can't suffer. God doesn't have a body. God doesn't eat meals, really. I mean, it's just sort of an illusion because he's just spirit. And the church and Paul here come in and say, absolutely not. If that's not true, then nothing we're doing is, is worth anything. If Jesus didn't really come incarnate in the flesh, eat meals, share fellowship, die bodily on the cross, then the resurrection means nothing. And that's what needs to be said. So it's a directly Easter passage. And I think there's an outcropping in what we're saying on this podcast of how we need to live in this sort of new time period. We need to live bodily with our attention on the spiritual reality and how those two things are directly connected. Because too often, and with so many of the problems we see in society and even some of the sexual and and, um, anthropological issues that we see manifest in our society— They often come down with human beings that don't know how to reconcile our interior life with our exterior life, my body with my soul. And there are real struggles with trying to have our interior manifest in our exterior and physical ways. And there's lots of people who don't feel that those two are connected or don't feel that those match. And there's real healing that needs to come for our world in these ways. And that's precisely what Paul is saying. He's like, think not just of the things that are here, think of the above, but the things that are here, the things in our life, Christ died and now he's hidden. That reality is not necessarily seen, but it is no less of a reality. And you're going to see it in its glory when Christ, your life appears. Um, this is limited. Sorry, I'm I'm starting. I'm starting to go off. No, no, it was funny. I, the, an example of this the other day is I was I was leaving the chrism mass, um, because people will reveal to you their interior life. Yeah. Like, what what? How are they interacting? That's how with we're God? designed. That's right. who we are. We can't help it. Right. And so so I was hanging out and uh, and I saw one of my priest friends and he was leaving the cathedral. And I and I just I just jumped out of my car and I was like, "You are cool!" So I just like shouted this to the whole neighborhood in a threatening sounding voice, <laughs> to, to, just to upset it, it just, to, just to, yeah. And uh, and so then I got into my car and I started to drive away. And that was it. The, Did you then, interact with it? <laughs> but then then in just in a second, he flagged me down. He he like run across the street, which he this brother doesn't run very often, you know. And like he ran across the street and he said to me, he said, um. 
he said, I was just like, I was getting all stressed out because the, there's a parking lot that, that um, a bunch of people park their cars at and then they take a bus and then he's going to miss the bus and he's saying, and he was praying to God and he was like this. And I literally got out of my car, shouted at the guy, <laughs> just told him he was cool. And he's like, he's like, and so I was like, oh, God is telling me this, my friend, he will give me a ride to my car. <laughs> I was going to say, did you not give him a ride? I said, of course I gave him the ride. And then, and I just like, it was just like beautiful example though of like hmm. how God works these beautiful things that like, it's it's just simple. You just shout to your friend. But then interiorly, sometimes we don't understand that my friend who was shouting to me was actually a cry from God to just say, you're like, I want to take care of you. Everything's going to be okay. Like, and it's one of those things to where like, we, like, it takes a little bit of maturity to have the sense that the exterior world and the interior life are actually profoundly connected and that God is is in command of all of those things. And yeah. when you have a buddy who just says, oh, I was praying to God, how was I going to get to the bus? And then you said hi to me. It just is this beautiful expression of faith that we can grasp onto. And on the flip side, from your point of view, it's not just, oh, I'm going to yell at my friend that he's cool, which is true, and that, that says something to the interior, but he also might have a need that I need to fulfill. So I can speak something to his interior and I can also be conscious and aware of an actual physical need that he has, which mm. is driving him to the bus. Right. But those two things are not separate. No, I'm just going to tell this person how great they are and not actually be conscious of any of their, their temporal needs. Right. You know, or the opposite of I'm just going to meet all these temporal needs and not really concern myself with their spiritual or interior life. They're connected. I mean, you're, it's a natural outflow of your yelling that he's cool at this priest that now I should find out how to serve him in, another, in in both of those ways. Right. I don't know. That's a beautiful example. Yeah. Then I, and I was like, dude, of course I will always give you a ride. You know, like, like, can you Unless give it? I don't. But he knew, he knew he came over to the car because he was like, I know he'll give me a ride because. Because he trusted that, oh, my, my physical needs will be met through this person because of this incarnate reality of them I already know. Right. Because I know them because I've already experienced this because I can trust in this. This right. is why I keep harping on the idea of evangelization is best with our neighbors or the people in our kids' school or whatever it is because there's certain people in our life who even if they don't share our faith, they trust. I mean, there's neighbors. None of my neighbors really share my faith, but there's neighbors, you know, if, if there was a fire in our house or something, I know exactly which neighbor's houses I would go to. And I know that they would get up at two in the morning and help us out. Or if, you know, I needed someone to watch the dog while we were out of town. Like there's all these people. I, I trust you. Right. I know I can count on you for these things. I right. know, you know, I can come to your house and, and grab a, a jar of salsa or some salt if I need to. And we all have this life. And so take those relationships where there's already trust. It's already proven trust. And then be able to go deeper into those. That's a much more effective way to witness, like Peter is saying, than... Right. Shouting something at them on Facebook. <laughs> and then giving them some bacon. And then giving them some bacon. Do you Which, have any bacon I can borrow? Yeah. Speaking of bacon. Let's John 20 it. Yeah, that doesn't, that's that, not a that good, was, that's not a smooth transition. Incongruitous, as they would say. So I do have another reflection on John. Um, I don't have much to add fat. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly straightforward story, and maybe you have a lot. No, I, I actually, I just saw one pattern, but what are you thinking? Well, um, so just, just to, to catch you guys up on what it is, this is the famous scene in John. It's John chapter 20. Um, it's the first day of the week, so it's Sunday. So it's the first moment really after the um, the crucifixion, which happens on Friday. So for the Jewish people, of course, 
at sundown on Friday, we're in the Sabbath. And if we're in the Sabbath, it means we can't do work. And if we're in the Sabbath and we can't do work, what it meant was the women who were there at Jesus's crucifixion could not anoint his body. They couldn't do what is necessary to actually bury someone properly. And so you get the impression that these women and Mary Magdalene, chief among them, had been waiting until the first possible moment, according to Jewish law, that they could go at sunrise once the Sabbath is over and go and do what's necessary. Just meet these physical needs of burying the dead properly. And that's what Mary Magdalene is doing so early. It's still dark, right? She's going. And I, I love this scene because we know that when Jesus was crucified, when he was buried in um, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, right? Is that who it was? Uh, there was this giant stone placed over it um, so that nobody could take the body and nothing could happen or no funny business. And so I just imagine Mary Magdalene walking to the tomb that morning. And I think the other gospel writers actually give us some insight into her wondering I wonder how I'm going to get in, right? I mean, I know there's a gigantic stone laying in front of this tomb, but I'm going to go anyway with my oils and with my things to prepare the body. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how on earth I'm going to be able to do this and meet these physical needs that I feel really strongly that I need to meet because there's a giant stone there, but I'm going to go anyway and we'll find out what happens. There's this remarkable trust on the part of Mary Magdalene of going even though there's an impossibility laying in front of her saying, I wonder how this is going to work. I don't know. I'm, I'm very moved by that. And yeah. I'm very struck by it. And so she goes and the tomb uh, is open. The stone's gone. So she runs back and she tells Peter. And John apparently is also there. And they have a foot race and they go to the tomb. And they're like, what is going on? And um, well, <laughs> and then we end up in three. We have three reactions to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yep. One, no faith. Who's no faith? Mary Magdalene. They stole his body. She, yeah, okay. They've okay. taken the yes, Lord from the tomb yes, and we don't yes. know where they put him. I'm hesitant to say no faith. But, but I know. But, but, I know. I mean, but but if you look, no, and then, you have, then you have Peter's neutral faith. Yeah. And then you have John's uh, absolute belief. I should say belief, you know, belief in the resurrection. Maybe not faith. No, no, no. Yeah, I, no, I see what you're saying for sure. It's kind of neutral belief. He's, he, Peter's skeptical. Mary thinks he's stolen and John yeah. says he's been raised. Like, however, that's true. However, however, what happens after that? And so we end this little section. The, the disciples go in. They check it out. They go inside. They, they look around. Um, he saw and believed. So John says he puts it on himself. He's like, I believe. And these two schmoes didn't. Um, <laughs> but it also says he ends this passage. And the church in her wisdom ends this passage by saying, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. And so John, in a certain sense, even though there are these strata of belief, John does say, but none of us really understood. Nobody right. understood. Right. But what's ironic about that is that Peter and John disappear. They presumably go back to the upper room. Maybe they tell the apostles. I don't think it's the upper room, but they go back to wherever they are. They probably tell the other apostles and they lock the doors. That's that. There's something that's compelling. There's something that's interesting. There's something they don't have an answer for. And they go back, they lock the doors. The only person who stays there is Mary Magdalene who could have gone back with Peter and John. She could have gone back to the community to have some solace or some peace or whatever, some community, but she can't leave and she stays. And it's only to her that the um, Lord appears. Remember, she thinks he's a gardener well, at first. Well, you know, and it all centers around this this idea of knowing or understanding. Like what, ha yes. what, what happens is that is that they did not yet understand yes. what, what it meant for him to rise from the dead. Totally. And so, well, so that he had to, 
that he John had says. to. Right. Not just what it means, but they didn't understand that he had to. And so you, so Mary Magdalene's using the same word, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, hodia, mm-hmm. um, which is to this sense of understanding. So yeah. so yeah. She, she didn't understand where, he, um, where they laid him. Right. And then they didn't understand the scripture. And then when Mary's there, she says, they've taken away Miller and I don't understand where they have laid him. I don't yeah. know where they've taken him. And then, then she does not know that it was Jesus. So, so there's this That's like, true. so like all of this, this thing is centered around like, okay, she, the, the difference between Mary and the rest is that she, she didn't understand, but she's going to push through for understanding. Because she cannot bear to be separated from the presence of Jesus. Right. Even if it's just his lifeless body. Right. She cannot bear. She can't. She can't. It seems go back to the rest of the community. Go back to her home. Go back wherever. She can't leave, which is beautiful and that's very good. But that's actually not the thing I've, I've been reflecting on. I, I do. I find it really, really beautiful. But and and maybe this ties together. I've been really struck by and I forgot this. I'm, obviously, we probably did this podcast three years ago because the reading cycle. But I forgot um, that this was how the church arranged it because we. It's Easter Sunday for Pete's sake. Right. We're celebrating. This is the reading that everyone's going to hear as the flowers are back in the church. There's white things draped everywhere. It's beautiful. It's it's the singing. The alleluias are back. This is the moment. And yet the gospel, which is the climax of the liturgy of the word in the liturgy, ends with, but they didn't understand and nobody really knew. So it ends, ironically enough, the Easter Sunday gospel height of this part of the mass ends in a kind of darkness. And what I've been reflecting on is that I think it's easy to forget with 2,000 years of Christian hindsight how relatively dark Easter Sunday actually was for the mm. early church. Mm. It, didn't, it wasn't this like, oh, everything's cool now. We get it. He's risen. Everything is awesome. It ends with darkness, confusion, fear, apostles still locked in the upper room, even after he appears to them a couple of times. And the thing that I've kind of taken a heart with that is that I think we want, at least I do, I've been living, and I know I did this last, we all did this last year when the pandemic was brand new and we we're like, oh, well, just Easter. As long as we get to Easter, everything's going to be cool. Right. And I've, I've still been doing it again in all these things that I've been sort of asking and praying. I just never stopped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, like, I'm like, Easter, everything's going to be fine by Easter. Right. Like, like I, I started that last year, and then uh, this year I'm still like, everything's going to be fine by Easter. And I have too. And there's, you know, even things I've been praying for or looking for clarity on. I'm like, by Easter, I'll know. By, by Easter, you know, there's this, and I've been praying of like, well, what happens when Easter Sunday comes? And I still don't have clarity on these particular things. So there's still suffering in my life. But there's still all these things. What and if we said from Easter, we will know? Not by Easter. Well, and that's true. Yeah, and that's true. Uh, and that's just, true. And I'm just trying to say something more profound. No, no, it's important though. But that's true. But it's it's good for me. It's it's solace to me and my little melancholic heart to remember <laughs> that the first Easter, and not only the first Easter, the first Easter season for these entire fifty days, it's relative darkness, it's confusion, and it's fear, even though. Jesus had changed the world. He had completely upended all of creation. But the church still experienced confusion and fear and darkness. Mm. Because we want, I, as a trying to be a loyal son of the church, want to say, but the church shouldn't be in confusion. These shouldn't be confusing times. The church should have clarity. The church shouldn't be in darkness. There shouldn't be this fear. There shouldn't be all of these things. And again, God doesn't want us to live in fear and darkness. Right. Of course, I, I acknowledge that. But God is perfectly okay operating 
knowing the truth and the truth of reality, even though the world still feels confusing and fear-filled and dark. Right. Because I think we want Easter to be this like, well, okay, that's good. Everything's good now. Everything's cool. The entire Easter season until Pentecost, when in a certain sense the light switch is turned on, the light bulb's already in. Nobody's turned on the switch yet until Pentecost. And then everyone's <laughs> like, oh, now we see it. And it's unfortunate that Pentecost, I don't think, liturgically gets the emphasis that it deserves. Right. I think liturgically it does, but in the common Christian sort of uh, psyche, it doesn't. Right. And this is the moment that it's like, oh, now we get it. And there's still danger and there's still confusion. I mean, look at Peter. He's still His life is being sought. People are still dying. There's still Roman centurions that he has to go face to face with. But he's not afraid of it anymore. He's not confused by it anymore. He's not disillusioned by it anymore. It's still the same world. Right. It's just that we make sense of it now. Mm. And I'm just, I don't know. There's something that's heartening to me in this particular moment in history, this particular moment in my life, this particular moment in our cultural moment where I can remember, yeah, no, that first Easter Sunday was pretty confusing and dark and fear-filled. And God still is changing the world. God is still operative. And Jesus chose to work in the small, silent whispers to appear to a few so that the few could be witness to the many. Yeah, I, I, and I think ever more now, I mean, and I look and the strangeness of Easter is always that the preparation of Lent is meant for the receptivity of the passion, the death, and the resurrection. Yeah. So we are... We are preparing ourselves and opening ourselves and looking at the process of our lives. Bless you. Excuse me. To be able to um, grasp what the mysteries of God really are. That we're that you're leaning out to say these mysteries mean everything, hmm. and um, and we and yet we still find ourselves in a moment of like it's really not easy to grasp these mysteries. That's why we have these periods of time to actually say, okay, hold on. I've got to recenter. I've got to refigure out how, how do I engage what this really means for me? Which in a certain sense are just reminders that it's always been hard yes. to figure this out. Sometimes we just on. forget how hard it is. Right. Which is really beautiful. And what you said, you said something really important because so money, so much, so many times, so, money. so your, often. Your money, dude. Ah, <laughs> thanks. To, for myself, and I assume for a lot of us, we think of Lent as the preparation for Easter. But you said it really well. Lent is not merely the preparation for Easter. Lent is the preparation for the passion, which leads to Easter. Right. But we haven't just been preparing for the chocolate and the Easter bunnies, right? Nope. We've been preparing for the passion. We're getting ready for game time. That's what Lent is all about, which is the only way the resurrection makes any sense. I don't know. That's a small point, but I just rarely think about it that way myself. Right. Because liturgically speaking, if I'm not mistaken, Lent ends tonight. Yes. Now, our fasts don't end. The penitential season doesn't end. But right. Lent, properly speaking, it's over on Thursday. Because now we've reached the game that we've been practicing for. Right. The game that we've... That sounds like a trite analogy. I don't mean it as a trite analogy. Like, it's it's game time kind of a thing. Yeah, it's... It's actually the it's the moment to be attentive. It's it's yeah. the Eastern wisdom to be stay attentive, awake. to stay awake, to to like grapple with and to to become present to what's yeah. real in front of us. Right. And um right. It, it, specifically in the saving life of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um and and how that came about. So so friends, whether you are prepared or not, Sunday has come. 
And, um, and, uh, and that's the great gift is that God has not, it's not forsaken us, but he's actually prepared us to be able to receive these mysteries through all of this cloud of witnesses, Mm. through, um, through these wonderful things and the meals that we get to share. I mean, like, isn't it funny that Easter, Easter dinner is like this special thing everywhere for the the believers. Yeah. It's it's to share the meal, to say, we're going to re-engage because God shows no partiality. He has called us all to the most profound love of life and uh, love of our lives. And so we love him back. And that's what these days are about. So open your hearts in love and let him give you the mercy that you can then give to others. Yes. He shows no partiality, but he also loves the particular. So celebrate the particulars in your life. Celebrate the things that, that your favorite foods, your favorite, the family, not your favorite family members, but your family, your neighbors, you know, with the particulars of your life, not just in a generic sense. Make Easter particular. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, cool. All right. Well, we'll see you next week. Word. We love you. On the Hill. Happy Easter. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash AICT. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Uh, That is the way that we can grow and get the word out to more people. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.